Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe. Today is our episode 39, and we're joined by the founder and CEO of Zingterra, Peter Hazelhurst. An important disclosure before we get started, Manisha and I, we do this Fintech Cafe as a side hobby. We have full-time jobs, and our employer is not affiliated to Fintech Cafe. We're not endorsing any products. We're certainly not providing any investment advice. The intention behind Fintech Cafe is simply to cultivate a community of thought leadership within Fintech so we can all be better informed about what's happening around us. With that, let's kick it off. We can start with introductions. My name is Ambika Sharma. I am the founder of Fintech Cafe, and we started this about 10 months ago. For my full-time role, I am a product manager within the fintech space and have been involved within finance for about 10-some years. I'll pass the baton over to my co-host, Manisha Chakrapani, for her introduction. Thanks, Ambika. Manisha Chakrapani, co-host on the Fintech Cafe show. Excited to host and welcome you, Peter. Can't wait to get started. So without much further ado, start off the call with a little bit about Singtera. So Peter, for the audience, could you explain what Singtera is about? The mission, as we read, is to unlock human potential through financial innovation. Uh, you came out of stealth in December 2020, so fairly, fairly new, and now are at a total funding of 46.5 million. Fairly quick growth, so congratulations. Could you speak to us about Singtera, the market opportunity, and how you validated some of your uh, assumptions there? Yeah, thanks. And great to join the, the show, Ambika and Manisha. For, thank you for the invite. So I think the thesis of Singtera really bought, was born out of some of what we did at Uber when we launched and worked on Uber Money. <clears throat> and we were lucky to have a really large team at Uber that was consisted obviously of lots of engineers and product people and so forth, but we also had strong support in BD and legal and a, a, a range of team members. And even with those resources, it took a year, 18 months to launch Uber Money over uh, a longer period of time than should have been logical given how much uh, ability we had to build. And what, what it turned, what it yielded for me was this idea that there must be lots and lots of founders with cool ideas of either build a neobank or do something interesting in payments, help people manage their cash flow better, all these unique use cases. And if it was so hard for us to do as a big organization, how was a new founder who's just got a cool idea going to get started and build a system and a platform? And when you think about what it takes to build a fintech, that if you're doing it from scratch yourself, you kind of got to do seven or eight BD deals to get started someone to do a ledger, someone to do KYC, someone to do payments or ACH money movement, things like that. You need another person to help you out with fraud management. You probably need someone for AML and so on and so forth. And so just the BD contracting process can take three to six months for some people before you even get started. Then on the engineering side, with all these different partners, you have to figure out how to normalize their schemas, make sure that a user over here looks like a user over there and then you have to build. And once you've built it, then you still need to go find a bank that will say, hey, I approve of all the work you've done. I'll let you use my license to, to launch your fintech. So the realization for me was, if we could provide a single set of APIs that encompassed the full range or gamut of everything you could possibly want to do in fintech under one roof, you would simplify time to market for many of the fintechs. You'd make it easier to design and build apps. and that was the sort of one side of the marketplace. 
The other side of the marketplace was trying to solve the supply problem, which is in general, there aren't enough banks here in the US doing fintech and being able to rent their charter or rent their license to crazy innovators that are generally coming up with cool ideas and things to do. And so we, we set about solving that in two in as well. So on the other side of the marketplace, we built a full stack platform for community banks to operate and run a fintech program. And we learned a lot as we got started by working with Coastal Community Bank on what they had done over time, which was essentially try and build a backend infrastructure to merge all the different platforms that the different fintechs had used and realized if we could make it really simple, then it would be much cheaper to operate and we could actually bring on supply. So in the last year, in addition to signing a bunch of fintechs who are in the process of building and our first have launched and we've probably got 10 launching this quarter, we also signed nine banks onto the platform. And progressively through the next couple of months, they're coming onto market. And what that does is it gives us a whole bunch of different uh, profiles and risk-taking banks to onboard and manage different fintechs. So in a nutshell, what we're doing at Sintera is saying, if you want to build the next Chime or Revolut or Venmo, we'll give you all the tools you need to build it. In about 60 days time, we'll give you a fully open source mobile and web banking app. So you don't even have to build your app. We'll just give you the code. And at the same time, we'll give you all the compliance support you need, all the regulatory help. We'll teach you what you have to do to make the banks happy. And we'll match you to the bank that matches your right profile. So if you're doing cannabis-based banking and fintech stuff, we'll match you to Regent Bank, who's a bank in Oklahoma that's really comfortable banking cannabis fintechs. You're doing crypto, we'll match you to Solera Bank, and so on and so forth. So we look at what you want to do, find you the best price, match you to the bank, and, and sort of help you along the way using our experience of having done this a bunch of times before. That was fantastic. Thank you. And so banking as a service, I think, is the term that's bandied around. Is that how you would try to encapsulate within a phrase? Is that in the, That's the industry you play in? I think that's generally what the industry is described as. But I, I think there's like there's a lot of confusion about the naming of this stuff. From a fintech's point of view, banking as a service equals, hey, can I rent the charter of the bank and I'll go build some stuff? We're more in the model of saying we're introducing a new concept called fintech banking. So if you think you're a bank and you have retail banking, people coming in into your branch, maybe you have commercial or small business banking, which is lending to the local coffee shop or whatever in town. Some banks might have a wealth management group, and we're proposing that they create a new division called the fintech division. And many of the community banks that we work with have sort of just added the X moniker. So, for example, Coastal Community Bank has CCBX as their part of the bank that does fintech support. And what we're doing is a step up from the bank's perspective from just rent your charter and rev share on interchange. What we actually help the bank do is offer the full components, all the services to the fintechs, whether it's KYC, fraud, AML, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's a more expansive definition, but from a fintech's perspective, it's one contract to sign and you get everything you need. So not to put a name on it, but would the zoom out embedded finance be a little more encompassing of fintech banking or the concept? Yes and no. I, so welcome to terminology jail. <laughs> right. uh, but but I, I would take embedded finance as a specific type of fintech where you're an existing company doing something else, 
and you want to launch financial services to your customer base. The perfect example is Uber Money. So Uber as a company helps people get from A to B or buy food and have it delivered. Uber Money is the embedded finance use case, which is a neobank for drivers whose job is to extend and create a stronger relationship with the driver community. So that's the embedded finance use case. A neobank use case, which isn't embedded in something else, would be Chime or Revolut or we have a, a fintech that's launching quite soon called Sincere, otherwise known as PetBank. And it's a neobank for people that love their pets. And so they're not embedded in any use case. The equivalent of an embedded finance version of PetBank would be if somebody launched VetBank, which is an embedded finance banking services to veterinarians who are running on the veterinarian platform. So for me, embedded finance is you're doing something else. You want to add financial services to it. And then fintech is a superset, which might include you're just starting a neobank for the LGBT community, or if you're, we have a number of folks doing uh, YouTube creator neobanks as examples. Thanks for helping sort that out. Uh, that was super helpful. So we'll stick with fintech banking. You did mention Uber. You have a past, quite a varied past at Yodley, Google Wallet, and Uber Money, which is a little more of the embedded finance. Could you Talk to us about how your journey to Singtera was shaped by some of what you learned along the way or did not. Yeah, totally. I think, unfortunately for me, because I'm relatively older, my journey actually goes all the way back to 1993 when I first came to the US from Australia. And we formed this uh, startup called Phoenix International and we built the first Windows based core banking system. And Back in those days, our mission in life was to get rid of people who are using at the time System 36s, IBM mainframes, uh, Unix boxes, and so forth, and convert them onto a Windows-based online banking, mobile banking experience. And the, the really amazing thing is that core banking system that we built back in 93 through 99 still runs today. And the most surreal part of my current job is that I'm meeting community bankers that run on the core banking system that we wrote 30 years ago. And they consider it the modern one, which is hilarious because the systems that we built our core banking system back in the nineties to replace, they still run. And so they're now like 45 years old. And so the journey begins with understanding community banks, what they need, how to build a bank, how to help them write a teller system. Or I remember we launched internet banking in 1995 which was like at the dawn of the internet. It was, it was kind of a strange time. Then it evolved in the financial services arena to working at Yodley. And that was the extreme opposite. So we were building online banking, mobile banking, bill pay, funds transfer, those sorts of features, pioneered PFM, created all the APIs that the folks like Plaid and Fidicity subsequently have uh, enjoyed and, and, and evolved on. But we were doing it for all the really, really big banks in, in the US. So we had Bank of America and Citigroup and Wells Fargo for a while and Wachovia and you name it. So I went from the smallest community banks with one branch in Osage, Iowa to the largest banks of B of A and others. And then I navigated myself over to Google and we worked on some really fun things, including pay by Gmail, tap and pay. And it was the early days of what could you do with your phone? And that was really exciting, very different role for me, much more on the consumer focus rather and having a brand, which was really exciting. And then the last foray into FinTech before joining or starting Singtera was the work we did at Uber. And initially 
the focus was on working on payments and risk and and all of the money movement across the 60, 70 countries that Uber operated in, that rolled up into our team, which was great. And then, then evolving and expanding the platform to be focused on building a neobank for drivers, basically. So that's the journey, sort of started really small banks, servicing the big banks, then being having banks be customers. So at Google, we had Citi and Chase and others be partners with us for payment processing and so forth. Same sort of thing at Uber. And now right in the intersection of all of that. So it's really fun to work with great founders that are coming up with cool ideas of things they can do in fintech. It's really nice to work with the community banks again and help them create a new line of business and become competitive again in the marketplace because it's quite hard to be a community bank these days because branch banking isn't as popular as it used to be. Fascinating journey. Peter, could you double click on why is it so difficult for community banks to be in business today? I think what are some of the challenges? Yeah, so I, I think it's not per se about today, but it's more that in the 50s through the 80s, banking was a local thing. You, you grew up in a town or a city, and where did you bank? You went to the downtown and you had national banks that were in the big cities like Viva and Chase and everyone else. But if you were out in the in the in the smaller towns or in the different marketplaces, you would tend to have a local bank. And many of the community banks, and there's many thousands of them, one town only, or one town and the next town over. And and the the managers of the banks have a great deep connection to the community. They lend to the local businesses and they're woven into the fabric of, of that society. Because at the time, if you were a small business in a small town in Georgia, there was no there was no internet. So there was no way for you to go get a loan somewhere. There was no cabbage. There was no small business loans from Cash App or Square. You basically had to find someone who knew who you were. You could do a personal relationship with them and they would bank you. When the internet came along, it changed that whole game. And, you know, there's the famous New Yorker article, photographed comic, whatever you want to call it, where it's the dog sitting in front of a keyboard and it says, you know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And the amazing thing about the internet was suddenly you could bank everywhere or anywhere. And so that unique franchise that the community had, had transformed into not being so local and you could price shop nationally if you wanted to. And not every bank adopted the ability to have an open platform and have customers across the US, but many did. And so as a small business, you had more options, you had more choice. And as a community banker, you had a great relationship, but the economics of servicing your local customers became more expensive because you were competing with the big banks that didn't have to physically be in town anymore because you could find them online. And so as a community banker, you're, you're basically trying to figure out how do you grow? And the normative growth path is, you know, keep getting more people in town and then it's move and buy a branch in the next door, next town over and rinse and repeat. But if the branch model of people walking into branches isn't a thing anymore, and let's be real, most most people don't particularly want to go into a branch at this point, and you can get your loans online, it creates an interesting opportunity for the community banks to say, how do I re reshape myself? What can I do differently? So you're helping the community banks and you're matching them with fintechs who hopefully are innovating with for product with products that are of use for community banks. 
So you're in the banking as a service space. Would that be fair? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Before we dwell into the different products you're offering, I'm curious to take, get your take on why aren't big banks doing this, which is banking as a service. They have the banking charter, they have the large teams who are responsible for regulatory reporting. Why haven't they identified this stream of revenue or why have they decided not to pursue this stream of revenue? Excellent question. And it, it goes back to 2008 and after the financial crisis, the, there was a, a banking law passed primarily to appease big retailers that were frustrated with how much interchange they would have to pay to the big banks for uh, regular purchases. So imagine you go to big box retailer X and buy $200 worth of groceries. Prior to 2008, and, and the law came into effect in 2011, it was the Durban Amendment. If you're a big bank like Bank of America, you could charge 1.4%, 140 bips of uh, interchange. So as a merchant, to receive money to sell groceries, you were ending up paying 1.4%, so 200 bucks. So you're paying $2.80 on, on a transaction. And the problem was, or the problem in retail is, retail is like a 2 to 3% margin business. So if 70% of your margin goes out the door in terms of interchange, that's a pretty frustrating place to be. And many of the retailers got smart and said, hey, this kind of isn't really working for us. And you may remember just recently, Amazon, sort of told Visa, hey, hang on, we're going to ban Visa cards in Europe. And this is all a game of how much interchange is a merchant prepared to pay. And here in 2008, the big banks basically were told, I'm sorry, we're going to cap interchange at a much, much smaller rate, more like five bips and 20 cents. And as a result, the revenue that was possible to run for a big bank in this process became low. In those days, Prior to 2011, if you had a B of A debit card or a Chase debit card, you earned reward points just like you would do if you had a credit card because you had interchange to pay for it. As soon as the interchange dried up, those transactions became effectively too expensive for the big banks to operate so they couldn't compete. And that's what created this unique arbitrage, which was a community bank was exempt from this interchange removal because one of the nice things about America is they really want the small town organizations to be effective and efficient and, and, and be successful. And so if you were a bank under 10 billion in assets, you could keep charging the interchange. So the law goes into place in 2011 and suddenly you've got the dawn of the folks like Chime and Square and others looking at this delta of value and realizing there's an arbitrage to be had, which is, we, the fintech, will take on the burden of customer acquisition and um, servicing and relationship building and product discovery, and we'll work with a small community bank and leverage their charter, their banking as a service license, and as a result, then together they would rev share the interchange. And the traditional rev share is sort of 70-30, meaning 70% of the interchange is owned by the fintech and 30% is owned by the bank. And so suddenly, if you're a bank, imagine you're a small bank in Boise, Idaho, and you've got 1,000, 5,000 customers, and you're growing by 10 customers a week, but you got lucky and you partnered up with Square, and suddenly you're getting 250,000 new customers a day, and each of them gets a debit card, and they swipe a little bit, and suddenly the fintech part of the bank is 10x bigger than the regular part of the bank. And so if you're a big bank, B of A, Chase, and others, 
the economics don't work to compete because they can't offer that value back to the fintech from an economic perspective. So on consumer debit, that's like the, the primary reason why the big banks can't compete. I think that was better than Wikipedia. <laughs> so thank you. You mentioned Chime and yeah, I just want to, for the audience, I just want to say Chime does offer, for example, a debit card and a bank account, but they do not have the bank charter. They partner with Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank for to provide their debit offerings. Okay. So and Chime's I wanna, done a fantastic yes. job of creating a brand and being open to great ideas from the community. Some of their innovations, including, you know, spot me and the idea of giving an overdraft to a consumer without charging a fee. A lot of these things are really great products, but imagine you're the overdraft product manager at B of A or Chase and you're thinking, okay, hang on. So I have a product that makes us a couple of billion dollars a year in revenue and you want to turn it into zero dollars. And the marginal cost of the overdraft to B of A or Chase is basically zero. So you'd be a relatively unpopular product manager leading that charge of let's waive overdraft fees. The interesting thing is some of the banks are getting into it like Ally and others and effectively charging for overdraft will ultimately die. But right now it's still an interesting challenge. And as your fintech, if you don't actually have the cost of the operations, you can be much more innovative around product value to consumer. Yeah, I mean, Chime was the number one most downloaded financial app in the United States in 2021. So they're definitely doing customer acquisition and customer innovation well. Okay, so Absolutely. I want to now dwell into your product offering. You today, Singtera today launched a new product called T-10. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Okay, so it's a free guided development experience which helps fintech developers and entrepreneurs quickly create a banking application on your platform, the Singtera platform. And for this platform, this application, you have partnered with Lineage Bank, which is a community correct. bank out of Tennessee to host, I would say this is a sandbox environment, if that's correct. Yeah. Um, could you tell us more about this product launch and what does your partnership with Lineage Bank entail? Yeah, so Lineage was, I think, our second bank and we signed them onto our platform in general, I want to say last August. Ironically, I'm on a red eye to Tennessee tonight to go and get a customer across the finish line with them tomorrow. And so I'll be in Tennessee where I believe it's raining cats and dogs tomorrow. But anyway, so what we, what, one of the observations that we've had as we've been building out Citerra is many of the founders that come to us are stuck in this conundrum, which is they have this cool idea. They want to test it a little bit, try it out and, and then go fundraise. The problem is to test a fintech app in the real world, you actually have to have a real bank behind it. And the bank has to approve what you're doing. And there's a whole bunch of compliance work that maybe you're not even ready to do yet because you're just exploring and figuring out what you want to build and how you want to build it. So you, you face this interesting dilemma of, hey, I really need a bank. And the banks say, hey, that's really cool. But if you're really at the early stages, we kind of don't know if we can you know, talk to you unless you have a million bucks raised from some sort of investor. So it's worth our while to talk to you. And the investors are getting savvy and they're saying, hey, there aren't enough banks. So until you've got a bank sign, we'll probably not give you that first million or two million. And I've seen this, like, I, I can't tell you the number of founders I've talked to over the last six months, 12 months that are stuck in this conundrum of, they have a cool idea, they wanna prove that it works and they wanna get signal so that they can go to the investors confidently 
But when you're building an app in a sandbox, it doesn't really do anything. It's not like you've got a real debit card. You can test out a payment process or you can't get signal on, did your customer onboarding work? Does KYC really work or those sorts of things? So what we've done with T-10 is basically, I'll, I'll call it a Brex for fintech developers. So as a, as a founder, you literally onboard as a customer of us, T-10, aka Syncterra. You do KYC. If you've already started a little company, you do a KYB, so know your business. And then when you open an account, we are really, really opening an account inside Lineage Bank. And it's constrained, so you can't spend $25,000 or things like that. But the next day, you can print yourself a debit card. You can get virtual cards. You can do all of your testing. And as you're building and testing your app, there's no sandbox anymore. It's live. So if you're building your app and you're doing a little bit of KYC, when you finish that flow, there's a real user added into your environment. And so what that allows the, the fintech founder and early builders to do is before they have even matched to a bank or fundraise, they can literally build the whole app end to end, test everything out up to 20 or so users that are employees and you know, authorized users of the fintech. And then, and then they can go much more confidently to their investors and say, it's already built. We just need a million bucks so we can go launch and partner up with a bank. And then on the bank side, the banks that we partner with, if they know that it's being built and certified on T-10, they're much, much more likely to take, invest in the development time to go to market with one of those fintechs. So the whole goal is basically to compress 90 days of uncertain time of coding in a sandbox and then hoping you can fundraise to 30 days of build, test, prove, make sure Apple Pay works, blah, blah, blah. And then you can go to your investors and you can go to the banks and it'll just accelerate everything you do. And this idea of a life sandbox or whatever we're calling it, life banking environment has resonated with nearly every founder I've talked to, big or small. And so basically our normal onboarding is start through T minus 10 and it's a combination of coaching. So it's like, don't forget to read up on the BAI's rules money laundering and KYC and so forth. We've got all the education components. We've got scripted coaching on how to build your app. And then in, call it 60 days time, I'm chasing my engineers as we speak, there'll be a full open source mobile app. So you don't even have to do that part of the building if you don't want to. Great. And so Peter, is a lot of your end customers primarily fintechs or is there a scale opportunity there beyond fintechs? Yeah, so I think the earliest, we're, we're really early. So we're like 18 months into this journey. <laughs> and one of the things that I wanted to make sure is that things weren't going to break when we started working with the big folks. And at the same time, a whole bunch of big enter enterprise types of entities have hit us up and said, hey, can we use you? And I'm like, sort of, yeah, maybe, but can you give us another month or so so we can make sure everything's super clean? But the way we built the SyncTerra platform is we can scale from the earliest one-person startup to the biggest 100, 500-person engineering team and direct relationships with banks. And we tailor the opportunity to you. And this is the, the nice flexibility that we have in the way we work with our fintechs. If you're doing embedded finance and you're building a neobank for Ford employees, think of it like a new credit union, we got you for that. And you get started, you build your app. You don't even have to have to build your app, just launch one. And then sort of fast forward to end of the year, October-ish timeframe, and we kind of evolve into Shopify for banking. Basically, you 
sign up, do KYC of yourself, just like you might do at Stripe or Shopify. Then you say, hey, I want to launch a neobank for people that love Pellegrino. You upload your artwork. Maybe you're actually the Pellegrino product manager in the US. And instantaneously tomorrow, you're printing debit cards for all of your customers. So Peter, hypothetically speaking, if I were to use your platform and to tinker with a product idea and launch, how does intellectual property on the idea and or the invention work? Oh, that's all yours. So it's, it's, it's no different than if you start coding with Stripe. Stripe gives you the building blocks to do e-commerce. We give you the building blocks to do all of banking, including funds transfer, bank accounts, checking accounts, ledgers. And we've got our first two or three fintechs launching lending fintechs this quarter. And then Q3-ish timeframe, we'll be able to launch uh, credit cards as well. So all of your IP is yours. We, we, we don't take any rights on any of that stuff. Got it. And would you say that Singtera then is a specialized version of an accelerator program, like in Y Combinator? T minus 10 definitely is like a, a super accelerator. And one of the things that we did also for YC folks is, and we did this also with the FinRise um, program that just started with Plaid, is we're giving, you know, substantial free credits, if you will, if you build on our platform so that you can get up and running and test and so forth. But yeah, the T minus 10 is very much like an incubator model. Build it out, test it, free access to the platform. And as soon as you, quote, graduate, aka finish, as in you get to T minus one, then we'll match you to a bank and off to the races you go. And we'll, we'll even help you with fundraising. My side hustle with, my, with Chet, who's my chief of staff, is basically running a gauntlet of 20, 30 VCs that love fintech early access and shopping cool ideas to them. Nice. So how do you, what's the revenue model of Singtera? And Singtera and specifically, I guess, monetization for T minus 10. So T minus 10, there's no monetization. It's just effectively a cost center. I mean, theoretically, because we are the, the FinTech, we get rev share on the interchange of the debit card swipes, but fundamentally that's not material because it's, you know, it's very early in the, in the journey. Our general model of rev share of model of value creation is that we build products, we sell them at retail prices on behalf of the banks. And then we either build it ourselves like our ledger, or we source components from different parts of the ecosystem. And the difference between our cost and the price the FinTech pays, we split with the banks 50-50. So it's super fair for the banks. It's really good for the FinTechs because there's an element of having multiple banks competing a little bit on price, but there are additional values that different banks have, whether it's Regent Bank that will do cannabis, for example, or we have a bank that's particularly interested in supporting folks doing sports, online esports and so forth, which is in some states thought of as gambling, but we have some banks that will help out with that. So different banks have different attributes and our job at Singtera is to act as that matchmaker, finding the fintech, the best price, the best relationship and the fastest time to market. All right. So just a quick time check. Usually we try to open up the floor for questions. So I do want to make uh, a quick announcement there for folks who are who have joined us today for the conversation with Peter. Please raise your hands if you're if you'd like to come on stage and join the conversation. So again, there is for those who are are not familiar, there is a way to raise your hand. It's at the bottom right of the screen. And we will bring you up on stage. Or if you're unable to join us on stage, you can always send us a back channel question. There is a little paper plane icon at the bottom right. Please feel free to send a message to Peter, Ambiko, myself, and we'll, we'll take that uh, question. 
so I'll just while folks are lining up on that front, Peter, I, we did notice that there was a recent study you did with Cornerstone about embedded finance. I feel like this is an opportunity we have to get your thoughts on some of the trends in the market. Seems like there's a huge growing market value. Would you be able to speak to some of the key trends in that area that you see? Yeah, look, so Ron uh, Shevlin is someone we worked with a ton at Cornerstone and worked with him on a bunch of projects before. And a lot of the focus we had was trying to understand how, how can community banks generate new forms of revenue and what sorts of revenue would they be? And the, the trend is for community banks to start to do this creation of this fintech division. Two or three of the banks that we're working with don't really have any uh, expectation of having actual consumer business at all. They're focused on how do we be the most efficient fintech partner bank? And that's where Syncterra comes in and helps them out. Peter, one question that I had from T-1 was that how do you find your fintech developers? What's the process of sourcing, I guess, one side of the marketplace? So it's super interesting. So I, I guess a couple of couple of part answer. So up until very recently, we have focused almost all of our exercise on creating a brand and a relationship with fintechs through places like Money 2020 and PR and conversations like this, where we're just educating people that we exist. And so for the most part, we're probably getting two to three fintechs a day, literally just coming through the front door and saying, hey, Sinterra, I'm really curious, what do you do? Uh, we want that front door to go through T-10 starting next week or this week. And even in sort of a small waitlist mode, I think we got to about 90 fintechs, give or take, that had said, hey, I'm really curious. I want to get started. I'm really early. Can you help me? So we've had quite a good success. And then subsequent to that, we've got pretty strong relationships with many VCs that are helping us out by sourcing fintechs that they're choosing to invest in and saying, hey, Syncterra is a really good platform you should explore. And then last but not least, it's straight line hustle. So we have four or five sales folks that are looking around, finding relationships, figuring out who's starting something interesting and just reaching out and saying, hey, do you need support? We're here to help. And why did you choose Lineage Bank? Lineage Bank, I actually forget how we got the first connection, but Kevin, the CEO of Lineage, um, was a friend of one of the, maybe one of our investors. I can't actually remember. It was quite a while ago. And we've just had a really, really positive relationship with them. They're great to work with. They're very interested in creating this new part of the bank. Uh, the bank is doing really great. And, you know, as we get started, it's, it's the power of the relationship between us and the bank is exactly the same dynamic that we believe fintechs should have with their banks, which is a good, strong, positive relationship where people actually know each other on either side because shit's going to break. And when it does, you want to be able to reach out to your bank and say, hey, can you help me out here? And that's what we help foster. Nice. And then last question, then we, we can open it up to the audience. I see Raj is already here. So Raj, just one last question from our side. And that is, I guess, if Sinterra were to be immensely successful, Peter, what does the world look like? So I think if, if we're doing it right, we end up like a hybrid between Stripe and Shopify for banking. Stripe was amazing. John and Patrick created this unlock for e-commerce and crazy innovation occurred. And 
no one knew that it would work that well. So they just opened the door and said, if you want to make it, take a payment, we'll help you do it. We want to do that on the banking side with this, the same level of simplicity, ease of access, and all-encompassing experience combined with the Shopify style of you don't actually have to build very much if you want to just get started and try it out. And when you're ready, we've got all this off-ramp to advanced features and capabilities if you want to do something custom. Got it. Well, thank you. And yeah, it's almost 40 minutes in. So let's move to the audience section. Raj, you're up here. If you like to go, if you want to share your introduction and then ask your question. Hi, Peter. Uh, lovely to hear your voice and talk to you after so many years. Uh, beautiful work you're doing at Tintara. I have a question regarding your product offerings. It seems mm -hmm. like at this time, all of it is based on APIs. Do you have any plans in the future to offer UX for your customers that can be white labeled? Yeah, well, thanks for that setup, Raj. We're in the process of finalizing a fully open source backend stack, web banking and mobile banking experience. So let's call it, I don't know, it's Feb 23. Chris, my CTO is going to kill me. Let's call it April 1st. He says boldly. From April 1st onwards, you'll be able to take a fully open source mobile banking app, drop in your UX, your logos and, and so on, and be ready to go. Obviously, people are going to fork that and make some changes. And hopefully we create a great community and we copy a lot of the work that Wade has done with Move. And for what it's worth, we're a user of Move's open source platform. We think that's really great. And yeah, so I don't know, call it 45 days, give or take. Like you can get started and move even faster than just with APIs. All right, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Raj. We have two questions from the back channel. First one is from Anand, who's in the audience. And he's asking, or he says, the model seems to be crowded. What is the main differentiator? So I think there are a couple of folks that we uh, definitely compete with, like Unit and Treasury Prime. And I would say there's a number of aspects that make us special. One particularly focused is on having a, a platform or a marketplace of banks with different capabilities and risk tolerances. What that means is that we can find different sorts of solutions and relationships on behalf of the fintech and all the shopping of what sort of bank is going to work with me, we, we help them out and make that much, much easier. So how do we differentiate? Two, two big factors. One is by having a range of banks that we can work with, we can offer lots of use cases that are different and unusual. And so we can do cannabis banking, we can do crypto, we can do gaming. The second part of that is, unlike our competitors, we're, we're, we're not connected at all to the bank's core banking platform. So we've built effectively our own mini core banking system that sits on the side. And that gives us the flexibility to do kind of anything we want to, and we can move at really fast speed. So for example, our first FinTech, GoGetter, they were like, hey, Peter, we want to offer interest. And we're like, well, we haven't built that yet. They're like, well, can we build it? And I was like, you can, but it's a lot of work. And so we turned around and we built interest calculations and make it up three weeks. And we just launched that. We've had a couple of fintechs come to us and say, I want to launch a service where the customers, we don't have social security numbers for them yet. Maybe they're inbound college students coming to the US. Maybe they're graduates and so forth. And many of the core banking systems make it very, very difficult to onboard a user without a social security number. Because we're our own platform, we can do that. So our pace of change and, and growth is really, really positive. And 
And I think that gives us a lot more flexibility when it comes to working with founders on what they want. We hired a, an amazing guy, Ravi, to join us to lead lending on the PM side, first of the January or second of January, whatever the first of the month was. And he thought he was going to have a nice cushy job of building out the lending stack for Q2. Meanwhile, we actually are going to launch our first two or three fintechs for lending in Q1. And that's the pace side of things. So we're very indexed towards listening to our founders, working with them, listening to the fintechs, what do they need, evolving the APIs. So if we, we often publish candidate APIs that fintechs can build on. And then if they don't like stuff, we just add to it. On Slack right now with an, a couple of founders that really want transactions cleaned up and cleansed, which we haven't built yet. So meanwhile, I'm expecting inbounds from MX and others as a result of this, this chat, because we just need to turn that feature on. And so we'll ship that, I don't know, 30 days from now. Okay, thank you. Poonam, you're on stage if you want to go ahead, if you want to introduce yourself and ask your question. Oh, hi, Peter. This is Poonam here. And I'm also by, by, by profession, I'm as an engineer. And I'm hearing all of your thought process, how you build the Singtera. And now is it's the one thing which clicks on my head, working into the cloud space. And I'm also working in one of the FinTech. So one thing is, like, as you mentioned, we are using FinTera and SyncTerra is providing a platform as an experience to other banks to and expose their APIs so that we can build a FinTech. So my question here it is, every bank has its own way of doing things, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so that's where I'm trying to understand what is the Singtera core because then supposedly I'm coming from X bank and I said like okay I'm gonna use Singtera because because I need to build an API on it people third party should might use of it so and I need her unique requirement and then other say like why bank came to you so you might have to build a unique product for each of them or what will you do in that case are you providing a core or generalized framework, or are you providing them a unique platform as per their choices? So this is the age old product management versus consulting business problem. And the mm -hmm. interesting thing about Fiserv and FIS and others is they built their core banking systems 30, 40 years ago mm -hmm. and have continued to evolve the feature set, but mm -hmm. they also have massive consulting teams that take whatever the source code is and customize it to a particular FinTech or bank's needs. In our 100%. model, we're very much a, a true software company. So we build software, we ship it, we listen to requirements, we generalize them, um, which sometimes can be slightly slower, uh, mm -hmm. but we have a really talented engine product team that can take a set of requirements. So for example, we had uh, a team saying, I want to do overdraft. And I was like, great, mm -hmm. done that, understand that. And they were like, well, when the bounce goes below zero, we want to sweep money from somewhere over here to cover that loss or the overdraft. I was like, well, that's great, but you should generalize that to any number. So if some user says they want to do $500 as their floor or $10,000 as their floor, they can sweep the money. And so that's the sort of difference between listening to what the fintech exactly wanted and building mm -hmm. a product strategy around that. So I would say, generally speaking, we're product-centric. We relatively publicly publish our roadmap, things that are coming soon. We're doing a whole bunch of lending work right now, for example. And then we take a lot of input. And, we, and then we adapt to it. But we don't have, there's no FinTech X custom version of the product. It's the same product to everyone. Yeah, so that's what I would like to capture because I, I would, because your unique value is, means your USP is providing the 
core platform which is which does uh, provides all all sort of feature that every banking is looking for and another ask on this like how it is different from open banking you know because sure that's, so that's banking. where i'm kind of trying to find a thin line difference between because you mentioned banking as a service wow it's a really cool idea but at the same time i'm trying to figure out what's then it's what makes uniqueness or differ from that open banking yeah no i totally get it so i think the way to think of it is open banking is a set of public standards by which banks themselves have to make available their information for their customers yep so whereas what we're doing is effectively creating a completely separate universe that's neither open banking nor anything else it's just here's a set of apis that a fintech can use to build a neo bank and because we don't touch the core banking system of the bank itself it doesn't matter the upside of open banking if you're plaid or yodly or someone like that is that it makes it easier for you to connect to the bank and be consistent in europe open banking has been super well regulated to the including the ability to initiate payments and what that means is like if you're uber you can actually connect to a bank on behalf of a customer move money on their behalf and it's all an open public standard that the banks are required to follow unfortunately in the us it's opt in by the banks there's no federal regulator like the fed saying you must do this and so it's a little bit less flexible but it's definitely a trend that i'm seeing so and i compare this to way back in 2004 or 5 when we were starting a lot of the scraping stuff at yodley when we got scale with scraping a, a bank like bva or whatever they would come to us and say here's our apis on our core banking system just use those and mm-hmm. the problem with that was bva was different to wells which was different from wacovia but we were in the business of making that simple for every fintech above us so that was our problem over time open banking makes it much much easier to connect up to the banks directly because you can go ahead other 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 audience are waiting for asking questions yeah no worries but thank you for coming on stage shunam and asking your questions there thank are three there are there are three currently in on the backstage or from the backstage so milun if you could wait first question i have is from keethi she is in the audience and she's in the risk side uh, of the financial industry and she's asking does she would basically want to know the challenges that you or the fintech partners face and she writes and i read does building so many products in a short time create any difficulties in integration between the products what other type of challenges are you facing super awesome question so yeah one of the things that's the the challenge for our tech team is that i'm crazy impatient and want stuff built yesterday raj will know this he worked with me at yodley and so what we've done which is quite fun is we've hired a quite large engineering team of 50 folks and we've built as many things as we possibly can to minimize the amount of different vendors a fintech would need to use to get their business up and running and i would say our first goal is being breadth of api with less focus on the economics under the covers with the exception of we built our own ledger and the core platform that sits underneath it and acts as the glue and we built all of the back end reconciliation and billing platforms as well. So, yeah, it's it's a big challenge building it all together and stitching it together, but we do it once and then as the fintech upstream of us they just get the benefit of it. So, we've worked with amazing partners like Marketa and Secure and Feedsi on fraud and and so forth and what that's allowed us to do plaid for account verification and 
is it's allowed the fintechs to get best of breed capabilities with a single standardized API. And then as we grow, we, we will continue to add more parts to the stack. We're working really hard with a couple of providers on credit cards, for example. And our job is get as much breadth as possible and then go back in and figure out any depth and relationships. So for example, at, at Uber, we had a team that focused on push to card and we worked directly with Green Dot to do that. Here at Singtera, we've partnered with Phoenix and we're generalizing, acquiring and move money across debit cards for all of our community banks as well. Great. Thank you, Peter. Next question is from James. He's also in the audience. He's a developer with the, with the fintech company and he's asking about data. He says, uh, where does the data live in the ecosystem? An excellent question. Everywhere and nowhere. So at its core, we're the, the store, if you will, of all the information that's being gathered by end users. So for their swipes on their debit card and so forth. And we provide access to that data for the banks from an oversight perspective and for fraud and AML monitoring. We provide APIs, obviously, for the fintechs to use to run their business. And then we, and yeah, so at, at its core, it's everything that we have is sitting in Google Cloud, GCP. Got it. And the last question from the back channel, Milan, then we'll come back to you. And that one's from Daniela. She's dialing in from Mexico, and she's asking also about the T-10 platform. She's saying, is it only open to individuals in the US or also within Mexico? Uh, fantastic question, Daniela. So at the moment, the focus of T-10 is for people building fintechs for the US. So if you were in Mexico building an app for the US, totally fine. We have a number of fintechs, for example, in Canada and in Europe that are bringing their existing experience from Canada or Europe to the US, and we're their partner for that. At the moment, if you're building for Mexico, we don't have a solution for you. But watch this space. Mexico and Brazil are super interesting to me and to our team. And I'd, I'd say we'll get there sooner rather than later. Awesome. Thank you. And Milan, over to you for your question. Thanks for waiting. Thank, thanks, Ambika, for having me. Yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Eurowave. We're building a smart payments app. The question I have is, how do you guys differentiate from a API provider like Plaid? So in, in the case of Plaid, we actually work with them. So if you're a fintech, when you're building, you could stitch together Plaid for account verification, SoCure for KYC, Galileo for Ledger, all these different components, or you can work with an integrated vertical, fully integrated stack like us. And it's, it's all about making it faster for you to get to market. And so, so you're love, saying you, you, you have like uh, plaid within your system. So you have plaid plus other stuff. Is exactly. That, that right? That's exactly right. So think of us as the union of all the features of plaid, Marketa, SoCure, our ledger, a full case management tool, feed cipher fraud and so forth. So we've stitched them all together. And so with a single user model and a single transactional model, and it's all in real time where, and obviously 24 seven, and we've got multiple card providers. So one of the cool things that we're launching in March is dynamic cards. So if you want to upload a photo and have that printed on your card, you can do that as an example. Thank, thank you. You're welcome. That actually helped clarify something within me as well. I thought Marketa was a competitor, but it's actually a partner of yours. Correct. Exactly. So we, Jason and the team at Marketa are amazing and we use them as our payment processor and connection to Visa and MasterCard. Got it. And uh, last question, just to wrap this up. 
from my side is there's a lot of activity currently within the crypto space, blockchain, stable coins. Are those use cases also supported? I know you earlier mentioned that crypto is a use case. Just I wanted to double click on that. And if I were to launch, let's say, the next crypto exchange, can I do that using your platform? So I, what we can do is we can provide you a bank that will give you the ability to have a wallet in fiat. So if you want to have a bank that says, hey, store your USD over here, and then you want to use Coinbase or some other marketplace or build your own marketplace to switch it over to buy crypto, we can give you a bank that will do that and all the APIs you need to ensure that good money is coming in and stored on, on in a wallet or a checking account, whatever you want to call it. So, so that's what we provide. And we provide banks that will be comfortable with you doing your side business, which is the crypto side of the world. But at the moment on our stack, we're not offering any crypto features directly. Got it. And I guess there's one more participant on the floor. So Andrew, welcome back. If you want to introduce yourself and ask your question. Thanks. I'm director of open finance at MX, leading our open banking charge ah, in uh, Canada. So yeah, I, I need to rewind on the conversation and pick up the MX piece and I'll definitely share it internally. But I, I wanted to talk about scale. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously your hope is that the fintechs building on your platform achieve scale um, at some point. At that point though, I have to imagine that they're thinking about taking on the fixed costs if they moved elsewhere or the opportunity for lower variable costs if they you know, take on each of those components that you bring together on your platform. How are you thinking about managing that so that that equation still makes sense for them for, for years to come and, and keeping those relationships that you build with them? Yeah, great question, Andrew. So the simple answer is because we've got the power of the network, multiple fintechs, multiple banks, we will always get the best volume pricing of everything and we just pass it on. So everything that we do uh, when you get larger has volume tiers and you want to get to the cheapest tier, you can either prepay it with minimums or we'll get you to the lowest tier. And we're not afraid of doing custom relationships. We've got a number of fintechs with that are coming through the funnel right now with a million, two million, five million users, all of whom who want, quote, bespoke pricing and, and we'll help them with them. And it's no different than Stripe. So when you onboard with Stripe, you just get a standard price. If you get any sort of significant volume, someone from sales calls you and says, hey, do you want to get a customer relationship? Let me, let's renegotiate. And we, we are absolutely indexed to doing that. The, the only reason you might, the, the value that we bring with having multiple banks on the platform is also the realization that if for some reason, one of our banks got testy and said, I don't really like this FinTech, I'm just going to keep my prices static. We have the flexibility because the platform's designed for multi-bank to split the volume across multiple banks from the get-go. And the cool thing we've done with MasterCard is change the model. So you don't actually even print the bank name on the back of the card anymore. So all you have is the brand. So you don't even have reissuing costs, which is super cool. And one other question, sorry, I keep saying one more question, but they won't, they won't stop. But this is the last one, I promise. This is from James and it's an add on to what Andrew asked. And he's, James is asking, do the integrations within T minus 10 platform, do these integrations come with a package or do you need to create agreements between each vendor? No, it's all included. You, you're doing nothing. It's literally single sign on. Well, it's not even single sign on. Our API is one single agreement and you're done. Super easy. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, those are all the questions we have today and we're also top of the hour. So Peter, thank you for joining. I'll let you have the last word if you have any concluding remarks, but we really appreciate that you gave us your time, even though you have a huge long flight. 
ahead of you. Uh, no problem at all. Thanks for having me, Ambika and Manisha. I think super great to chat with you and talk about what's going on. And if anybody has any questions, come to our community Slack or just email me at p at singterra.com. Super easy. Great. Thanks so much for sharing your time and safe flight. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Next week, we'll have New Bank, the Chief Product Officer. So we'll talk about uh, fintech in Latin American space next week. But for tonight, this is it. So thanks for joining. Mm -hmm.